Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi everyone. I'm well, it's obvious. I'm John Verhoeven, and I was a cop back in the 80s in Sydney. And I'm Paul Verhoeven, John's son. I'm an author, and I wrote two books about Dad's time as a cop. The first five seasons of Loose Units spanned my time in general duties, forensics, my time as a firefighter, and even my stint running a funeral home. This season, we're visiting the locations of Australia's most notorious, baffling, horrific crimes and looking at what happened there. From Snowtown to the family... From the Morehouse murders to haunted highways. This season of Loose Units is your go-to guide to the worst crimes in Australian true crime history. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Hello and welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. Last week on The Shadow Files, Dad and I took a look at an extremely tragic case involving the taking and murder of a child. And it's not that we were trying to change tack, but it did remind me of a fairly, fairly, one of the most famous cases involving a child in history, the uh, the case of the Lindbergh kidnapping. Now, many of you all heard of the Lindbergh baby. That name has been used ad nauseum in pop culture. It's become a bit of a trope, but there is a reason. Actually, there are many reasons why the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby became such a huge part of the history of true crime, and in particular, the history of kidnapping and the way it was handled moving forward in America in in particular. So, Dad, I guess in order to start with the Lindbergh kidnapping, we need to have a look at uh, why the Lindberghs were so famous. Well, Charles Augustus Lindbergh, Mm -hmm. who was born in February 1902, was... I mean, I've done research because we were going to do... We are going to do... Talk about a very famous kidnapping... You know, it's always interesting looking at the history of the family. Mm. Charles Lindbergh was, I guess I was doing some research this morning and I was discussing Charles with uh, Christine and he and I have fairly similar uh, traits in that he was a, I think he was an adrenaline junkie. Paul, do you know what barnstorming is? I do not. Oh, mm, it's a... It's a military term, right? No, you're, you, no it's actually w- with early biplanes, yeah, uh, which were fairly slow. So, hang on, just 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 wind it back a bit. So, Charles Lindbergh was a pilot, right? Correct. Yeah, he was an aviator. Yes, but he started off barnstorming. Okay. And Paul, this is going to sound totally wacky. Um, a barnstormer. So you, you can picture a very large American barn, uh, you yes. know, where they kept uh, hay. Cattle and whatnot. Hay, yeah. hay, mainly. Hay, hay, Huge, hay, hay. huge, like a massive... A barn, if you will. A barn. Yeah, hence the And name. it had a door at the front. Yep. And can you guess what it had at the back? A fucking door? Another door. I s- hang on, 
hang on. Yes. Let's all just pause for a second. If what Dad's saying is true and mm. if his kind of anticipatory tone is anything to go by, I'm going to guess that young Charles Lindbergh would fly... Correct. Th- through <laughs> the barn. Hang on. Can I... <laughs> it's that dangerous. Is, that it's- is... It's crazy. What, what, hang on, what's the diameter of the plane? What's the wingspan of a biplane and the door width? You know, you know what I'm saying? Is he, <laughs> hang on. Paul, hang and on, bar, I mean, not only did he do barnstorming, which mm-hmm. was huge in America, uh, you know, around about the Depression, people required, um, you know, entertainment. Yeah. And you also have heard of the famous wing walkers, uh, were generally yes. ladies in yep. scantily clad outfits, mm-hmm. and they would actually stand on top of the the bi or triplane uh, connected with wires, and you know they'd take off with these women on top. It's extraordinary. So well, I guess one of the things you'd want to do prior to storming a barn would be to make sure that <laughs> there's not there aren't sort of bales of straw in your way because that would be a bit of a downer Mm -hmm. uh, flying into the barn and find out that it's full of and you can't you just crash into the hay that's a bummer (laughs) I'm I'm looking up barnstorming dad Mm. Uh, okay (laughs) I don't think I don't think barnstormers fly through barns. I don't think they? you've you've made that up. Huh? You fucking womble. Hang on, here we go. Most barnstorming shows followed a typical pattern. On any given day, a pilot or team of pilots would fly over a small rural town and attract the attention of the local inhabitants. The pilot or team of aviators would then land at a local farm, would then land at a local farm, hence the name barnstorming, and negotiate with the farmer for the use of one of his fields as a temporary runway from which to stage an airship. They fly through barns. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Hang on. Point taken. Hang on, hang on. Did barn stormers fly through barns? Stunt pilots didn't fly in barns, of course, but their methods were similarly makeshift. Okay, yeah, they didn't. Now, to be fair, listeners, I laughed very hard, but I believed him. So mm. shut up. I <laughs> what I'm saying is I genuinely believed you. Well That is such a charming that's so charming. Um Okay. Anyway, he was a good pilot. Well, okay, but at no point did he. Fly. Okay, so basically, what you're saying is a barnstormer was a like a traveling daredevil who would then, you know, fly over a small ta- rural town uh, to buzz mm. up some uh, some uh, publicity, get everyone interested. You'd park in a nearby field, chat with the farmer, use that as a runway, and then do basically a little aviation show, do loop to loops and stuff, um, acts of stunt work, effectively. Yes. So he was a traveling sort of um, stuntman, basically. Mm. And then he. Um Look, he had his own, um, he bought his own plane for $500 uh-huh. and he had 30 minutes of training with a, uh, a pilot next to him. Wait, what do you mean? Yeah, that's when he first started flying. He was a natural. He had 30 minutes of tuition mm-hmm. and then he did his first solo flight. Right. He was clearly a gifted pilot and he was a daredevil. And look, he was well-educated, came from, um, you know, a sort of a society family, as one may call, um, you know, that type of family back particularly in the early 20s in America. Was he wealthy? Uh, oh, they, they, they were well off. I guess you need to have money to be able to just grab a plane. I mean, I mean, $500, Paul, 
back then yeah. is a staggering sum. Mm-hmm. Then he got a job uh, with the uh, flying the US mail, which is a really important job because okay. the, the mail must get through. Yeah. And there was a, a, f- a family that put up a reward mm-hmm. and it was to fly from New York to Paris uh, across the Atlantic. It had never been done by a single person. There were plenty of attempts. Most of them ended in tragedy. Yep. And there was a substantial prize of 25000 US. Now, to get an idea, listeners, of the value of $25,000, mm-hmm. what you do is, um, this is just a sort of a, a ballpark um, calculation, yeah. you multiply that by 15 to give it a valuation in today's money. So, Paul, what is 25 times 15? You cannot ask me to do maths. I'm basically functionally mathematically illiterate. What you just tell me? I don't know. Oh, um, hang on. If you wanted me to actually calculate, I thought you were going to yeah. test me. Hang on. What's no. the wait? Here we go. Twenty-five times fifteen. Hmm. Sorry, everyone. This is uh, between getting barnstorming wrong and having to do real-time calculations. This is a very strange podcast. Fifteen times twenty-five. Is that right? Yep. Uh, three hundred and seventy-five. So three hundred and seventy-five thousand. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is a lot of money, isn't it? In fact, I have a feeling it's a lot more than that. I think it's it's in the millions. Anyway, just making shit up now. Okay, uh, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and the protagonist in this story, yeah. Charles Lindbergh, when he was uh, in his mid twenties, he got some backers. Now it was a prize. Uh, the the people that said this is going to be the prize, they gave a five-year time limit. And in that five years, listeners, not one person um, achieved that goal and got the money. So the family, mm-hmm. the, the people that were running the competition, they decided to extend it for another five years. That's how difficult it was. And Charles Lindbergh, on a fateful morning, uh, he, he, he took off in his plane mm-hmm. and... He, it was an extraordinary flight. It was over 30 hours. He hadn't got a lot of sleep the night before because he was so excited. Yeah. Uh, it was raining. It was terrible weather. The, the, the runway was bogged. He had to get people to actually push his plane to help him take off. And, I mean, he flew continuously, which means he flew through the evening... He flew into thunderclouds and the the, the, the the heights that he attained was high as 10,000 feet and as low as 10 feet. It's an extraordinary feat. And he flew over uh, Ireland, came down over England, across the English Channel, and he then buzzed the Eiffel Tower. Yep. Now, Insane. the greatest traffic jam ever in the history of Paris was achieved on the day that Charles Lindbergh flew over Paris. He landed in an airport mm-hmm. about seven kilometres from the middle of Paris. Yeah. There were in excess of 150,000 people there to greet him, including, as a bit of trivia, yeah. two people that were going to become Prime Ministers of India. It was a huge, huge event. When he landed, the crowd 
literally pulled him out of his aircraft. And you know, um, at shows, music shows, where people, they jump into the crowd and you sort of crowd surf, I think it's called. Yeah. He was crowd surfed for more than half an hour. Whilst he's being crowd surfed by the the frenzy of Parisian, um, just sort of people that had gone crazy. Yeah. Another thing that is really surreal, and I think you'll find it fascinating, that, Paul, do you know anything about the construction of biplanes back in those days? Not really, you know, no. Okay, no. well, the wings were actually made of fabric. Right. Of material. Mm-hmm. They would cover the wings with very light timber. Yeah. And then they would use sort of a glue, and they'd sort of glue the, the material, the cloth, mm-hmm. onto the framework. The people in the crowd whilst Charles is being carried above the heads of everyone, mm-hmm. people were literally... Um, well, do you remember that film Perfume at the very end? I haven't seen Perfume. Okay, well, there's a scene... Um, Are you going to spoil Perfume to illustrate a point? No, I don't, I don't want to spoil it. Let me just say that people who, who were so obsessed with Charles and what he'd done and, of course, his plane, they began to cut the fabric on his plane. Right. And within minutes, there was virtually nothing left of his plane. People had taken samples, which is just quite extraordinary. And by the time Charles gets back to his plane, there's virtually, well, all the material's gone. And they had to bring in armed guards with bayonets to sort of protect the plane. And... Charles received the Legion of Honor. And for the first time ever, they flew the American flag at the French um, embassy, uh, you know, the, where all the, the sort of head of parliament. And then Charles flies back to England. Mm-hmm. Same thing happens, mm-hmm. incredible crowd, and he makes his way back to America. Now, he was regarded as a true um, a hero. Of the people. They even did a stamp in America mm-hmm. of Charles' face. And he, 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 he gets married. He took marriage very, very seriously. He was a very tall man. He was very sort of... He was Scandinavian background. And he was very particular. And he ends up living in upstate New York on an estate that yeah. was 390 acres. We are talking... Pretty big. Big. They had uh, a full-time nurse. It was in New Jersey, right? Hopewell, New Jersey. Very different um, area. But I guess when you are one of the most famous people in the world at this point, you probably are looking for a little bit of privacy. So a bigger state will achieve that. But he was... I mean, he was... As you pointed out, this is all to head towards the fact that he was abominably famous, right? He was so famous yeah. that between the wars... When he was in Europe, mm-hmm. he and the American ambassador met um, Goering, who was one of Hitler's henchmen. Mm-hmm. And there's a photograph of Lindbergh receiving one of the highest medals of honor from the Third Reich. Mm-hmm. And that was problematic for Charles when he came back to America yeah. because he was what was called mm-hmm. a non interventionist, which when you look back in history and think about what that means today, 
there are very, very good reasons for adopting that, that strategy. Right. But the problem for Charles is that because he was a non-interventionist, the American people regarded him as a sympathiser with the Nazis. And he, in his private life, he began to achieve great um, rank within the American military, but that was then taken off him. Because they felt that he was, in essence, because what he was against was America getting involved in World War II. But then what happened was there was... So there's a lot of history behind this story because then there was Pearl Harbor and then he he actually went as a civilian because yeah. they stripped him of his high rank within the American Air Force. Mm-hmm. He went into the Pacific region after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He flew as a private citizen and actually shot down Japanese planes. When he comes back to America and... Because people didn't really want to get so involved and fund the war effort, but eventually they did, and then his rank was reinstated. So he was he was, and that really, was a, really that, that was that was a uh, Pearl Harbor. You just said many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Pearl Harbor. So that was in 1941. But mm. the thing we're actually talking about, so that, that all happens later. Mm. The, um, the actual crime we're talking about, the kidnapping, as we've said before, uh, happens in 1932. Yeah? That's right. And so picture an... Inc- I, I, I've already um, formulated my own opinions, and they're strong opinions, Paul. Okay. About this whole story. Yeah. What was going to happen one fateful night was that their firstborn mm-hmm. was upstairs in the nursery. 
and it had been raining at around about 9pm mm-hmm. someone entered the bedroom of their firstborn right. and the firstborn was a little under two years of age the firstborn by the way with the baby was called Charles August Lindbergh Jr um, yeah 20 months old named after named after Charles Lindbergh the family were downstairs mm-hmm. around about 10 p.m that night yeah the nurse comes downstairs and alerts the mother and father says that the baby's gone parents rush upstairs the scene they are confronted with is an interesting scene from a forensic uh, crime scene perspective uh, there was mud muddy uh, impressions which mm-hmm. reminds me of the story last week in yes. the hospital yes and the, the 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 muddy prints going to the child's cot were uh, they were so sort of um, blurry and smudged that you couldn't determine the size of a of a foot of a shoe. You could just tell that somebody had tramped in mud heading Correct. to the cot and back. Okay. From the window. Right. And okay, so how high up was this? This wasn't this the This is on the second floor. Second floor. Okay, in the middle of a very large estate, 10 p.m. at night. The child's gone. Is there any sort of um is there anything else there to indicate that this was a kidnapping or could it have been something else? Paul, there's no blood. Yeah. There's there's no sign of a struggle. Okay. They look out the window. Now, before they look out the window, yeah. resting on the windowsill mm-hmm. is a note. Now, that note is the first ransom note. I've actually got a picture of it here. It's very odd. Very odd. Terrible handwriting. Grammar's shocking. And then there's this very strange, I guess where a signature would be in the bottom right-hand corner, there is what looks like almost a sigil. It's like these these crescents and a circle. Um, what do you make of this? I find this case... that Now, I emphasised, listeners, the first ransom note. Yeah. That's really important mm-hmm. because, Paul, we've been delving into a lot of crime over the last five years. Yeah. This case... And may I say congratulations on bringing this to my attention because uh, it's not until you look into a case. Mm. I mean, we all, we all know about famous cases yeah. that have happened, but when you actually delve in and are forced mm. to look in minute detail, on so many levels, this particular case is so bizarre. It's It's so... Some of the things that we're going to talk about, I felt as though I'd been whacked in the back of the head with a mallet. Right. Um, I just can't help but think the person or persons that committed this crime had incredible inside knowledge. Right. And that's something that is not discussed in all the research I've done it's um, 
There's no way on earth. But but look, how did this particular person or persons, how did they get up to the second floor? Well, just quickly, actually, I was going to read you the note. Actually, read the listeners the note. Now, there's a litany of typos and weird pronunciations and all sorts of problems. I'm going to read it the way I assume the, the person writing the ransom note uh, intended it to be read. Dear sir, have $50,000 ready, $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notify the police the child is in good care. Indication for all letters. Uh, and then there's a weird signature with sort of holes and circles. Lots and lots of typos. The dollar sign is at the end of each number, which is weird. Ready is spelled R-E-D-Y. Good is spelled G-U-T. Money is spelled M-O-N-Y. And it's written extremely hastily. Um, okay. Um, so if I was an investigator, let's just just, just hypothesize. Yeah. I've been called to the scene. Mm. Well, let's pretend the two of us have been called to the scene. Yeah. Is there a word in that that um, that demand note? Mm that you find would tie you to perhaps a particular nationality. Yeah. Yes. Correct. Uh, I mean, good. to me, is, there, good is that not... Good in German. And my, fir- my first thought was, I mean, I'm reading this going, um, bad spelling might imply uh, English as a second language. It might mm. also imply a lack of education. But the dollar signs at the ends of numbers, my first thought was, which countries uh, do that? Which countries Brilliant. have the... And then, of course, GUT as G-U-T. That's not a typo. That's the way you might spell the word. Paul, brilliant. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, to me, uh, it's got so many alarm bells. Okay. And then, of course, I've delved right into the case mm. and I just can't find any any sort of reference to this, which I find, I, I don't even know what to say. Okay. So... Okay, Paul, so how did the... Uh, have you noticed in the letter how the person talks about we? Oh, that's a good point. He's giving the impression... That it's a group of people. That it's more than one person. Yeah. Uh, well, should we say now whether no. it is or isn't, or should we just leave it? I can leave that. Cool. So, Paul, how did this particular person or persons how did they get up to the first or sorry the second floor look if you had to get down with the child i mean getting up you could shimmy up a drain pipe climb up a trellis whatever getting back down with the baby to then ransom the baby later on you would need something like a ladder and what did they find outside they found and this is weird mm. they found bits of a ladder which says to me one of two things, and I was talking to Tegan about this actually. It says to me either that this person built their own ladder and then hmm. disassembled it or whatever, or the ladder broke on the way down and then they bolted. Um, hmm. And right. I, I, I'll actually talk about that second theory later on because I, hmm. uh, yeah, I have a theory about that as well. But bits right. of the right. ladder were found at the base of the windowsill, right? Yes, but Paul... Hmm. It was not a ladder. Now the ladder it was a timber ladder. Yeah. But it had but it was a back in I'm not saying that sort of back in the day, mm. in early sort of early twentieth century, yeah. timber ladders were slightly different. But the principles of ladders and I've had 
um, as a professional firefighter, I I know and understand ladders. Of course, that's that's the tool of trade for firefighters, and this particular ladder was homemade in the true sense of the word. Uh-huh. Now, but it was it was an extension ladder, so. When you have an extension ladder, you must have a system in place that will lock the ladder mm-hmm. once it's fully extended. Does that say anything about preparation in terms of the person knowing oh, they will need an extension mate, ladder? Hundred percent. Great. Not only that, mm-hmm. you've you've pulled up. The weather's inclement. Yeah. Okay. It's muddy. Mm-hmm. You're going to leave lots of physical evidence, although they found no fingerprints right. at the sill, which clearly indicates to me. Mm-hmm. The person had gloves on. The person has made a... We're not going to call it a makeshift ladder because that sounds a little bit amateurish, which, again, in terms of what we eventually find out about perpetrator or perpetrators yeah. is really fascinating. You'd say bespoke. You'd say they made it for the for this specific purpose, That's right? right. Purpose, and, purpose built, yeah. Yes, and without giving away too much about, about the occupation yeah. of said offender mm-hmm. slash... Yeah. It's it's pretty fascinating. In fact, it's really really interesting. Mm. Um, but the first thing I thought of when I read the story. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you would imagine that the windows would be locked, particularly someone with such um, notoriety and high prominence in yeah. society. Mm. They're very they're, they're they're fairly reclusive. Um, you know, they're they're very private people. Yeah. And how on earth does someone know where to locate the house on the estate, bring in this cumbersome not um I mean, it's not a small item. Yeah. It's a bloody ladder. Yeah. How do they know what window to go in? The whole thing, to me, smacks of an inside job, which, by all accounts, was dismissed by all the authorities. I'm bamboozled by that. But one of the biggest problems I have is... And again, listeners, I'm going to refer to my fire brigade experience. I have used ladders mm. in anger. Now, that term in anger means you've used them for real, in a real situation. Is that the expression? That's really interesting. That's what fireys say, in anger. Right. So, you know, it's difficult enough to climb a ladder, mm. a good ladder, yeah. then to go from the ladder, open a window, then... You've got to set the ladder up really, really well. It's critical. You've then somehow or other got to be able to sort of pull yourself inside. Now, for anyone that's ever gone in through a window, mm-hmm. what happens? You get to that point where you can't bring one leg sort of over and around your head, can you? you no, no. What you do is you then get to this very uncomfortable point on your sort of lower stomach where it's really uncomfortable and you basically have to lean over and touch the floor and it's very, very sort of unceremonious the way you fall literally in a ball or you might be able to do a roll to get yourself into 
the bedroom. There would have been timber floors and you're thinking, how can I do this really, really quietly without disturbing people downstairs? Yeah. You then go over to this cot where you know there's a baby sleeping. Yep. You get the baby mm-hmm. mysteriously. Quiet. The baby doesn't wake up. Yep. Uh, yes, that is a note. So you've got the baby under one arm mm-hmm. or did you bring a haversack? Ah. A backpack. Yep. And you put the baby in the haversack. This is all very, very problematic, Paul. This is... I have great... I have real problems with this, which makes me think... Uh, you know, well, was what I mean. What did the person do to the baby? Here's okay. So they didn't find any blood in the nursery. They didn't find any blood. Uh, I believe on the ladder, on the bits of the ladder that were found. They didn't find any fingerprints, which again speaks to your assertion that the kidnapper was wearing gloves. But like I said before, um, it looks like the ladder broke during descent. Mm. Um. Now, my terrible theory was, like, if you are holding a baby that you plan on ransoming and you're heading down a homemade ladder, the ladder breaks, you fall, the baby dies or is mm. injured. Yep. If you were a person still intent on getting your money, you wouldn't tell them that. You would act as if the baby is still alive. But my problem was that the ladder was broken. I was so confused by this. But the, but the ransom note's there. Uh, presumably you would have the ransom note already written. Yep. You'd put it on the windowsill as you were heading down. Correct. So at that point, you are well and truly committed. Plus, if the, if the ladder breaks, you can't get back up. You can't change your mind. You can't put the ship back in the horse, right? You're, you're done. That's, you have to stay the course. At that point, you are now two stories down holding a baby and a ransom note in the room where the baby isn't there anymore, Right. You are now a kidnapper. So at that point, the kidnapper is probably going to have to continue with whatever plan they've got. We have ascertained that a baby, the Lindbergh baby, has been taken. It's nighttime, scaling a ladder. I think we've scratched the surface in terms of the investigation. Uh, I think that next week we, we, we get into the nitty gritty. By which you mean the investigation, which is where things get, God, really, really interesting. Because as mentioned, uh, Colonel Lindbergh was a celebrity and was extremely well connected. You will not believe some of the people that got, not just, not roped in, I mean that leapt into the fray to help. Now, whether that was through genuine concern or wanting to, you know, um, swing their dicks around or both. What's funny, Dad, is um, Tegan and I have noticed a common thread whenever we deal with uh, big big true crime cases that have a that, that go wrong basically and typically speaking when something has gone wrong it's because you've got a bunch of uh egos in the room people trying to kind of uh, make it all about them not listening to advice uh just big stupid people making big weird decisions based on pride or i mean it's look Spoiler alert, the wheels fall off this pretty fast, but the the level to which the this goes is it's, it's kind of spectacular. The reason the Lindbergh baby kidnapping is so famous isn't just because of the kidnapping, it's because of what happens next. And we'll be dealing with what happens next in part two of our look at the Lindbergh kidnapping next week. And later this week, we'll be looking 
at the new Netflix two-part true crime documentary, which is also a spin-off of a podcast. So as you can imagine, that does give us some um, food for thought. But it's a fascinating little series. It's on Netflix right now. So if you want to do your homework, all you have to do is go and watch it. Uh, two parts. Each one is, I think, 50-something minutes each. So it's pretty intense. It's pretty depressing. It's pretty real. But we'll be talking about that later this week on Loose Ends. In the meantime, have a great week, everyone. Thank you for listening again to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. And we will see you soon for more Loose Units. Bye, everyone. Cheerio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.